Welcome to another inspiring message recorded at Rivers Church. I want to share a message with you today that sort of follows on a little bit from what Pastor Andre was speaking about last week. He's speaking from the life of Saul and the fact that Saul got stuck with his baggage. And I want to show you today a portion of Scripture that really reflects the impact that that can have if we don't deal with our baggage. Now, I'd like to start by telling a story that I read this week about the Battle of Adwa. It's when Ethiopia annihilated Italy. This took place at the end of the 1800s, and Emperor Manelik was the emperor in, in, um, in Ethiopia. And he'd come to power with the aid of the Italians, and together the two nations signed the Treaty of Wuchale. But there was one particular article that was understood very differently on either side. The Ethiopians read it to, or they understood it to mean that they retained their full independence but could call on Italy if they needed help. However, the Italians believed it to mean that they had control over Ethiopia. When this came to light, Manelik tried to bring clarity to it, but they couldn't reach an agreement, so eventually Manelik withdrew from the treaty. In 1895, they prepared for combat because they knew that the Italians would soon be coming to try and impose control. In February 1896, under the leadership of General Oresti Baratieri, Italy began to, seize, uh, to move to seize control in Ethiopia with an army of about 14,500 soldiers. However, they were met with a resounding defeat for a few different reasons. Firstly, Italy completely underestimated the strength of Ethiopia's army. Italy came with 14,500 soldiers, but Ethiopia had an army of 100,000 warriors strong. They had terribly outdated maps, and so where they thought they were going was not where they ended up. They overshot themselves completely and put themselves in a compromising position. And they also came with old and outdated equipment, so they weren't well equipped for battle. It was a stunning victory by Ethiopia. Uh, that really led to them being able to retain their independence as a nation and for their people. But I don't want to focus today on what gained the victory for Ethiopia. I want to focus on what caused Italy to lose the battle. Three things Italy desperately needed was numbers, direction, and equipment. Now, we are at war, church. We are always at war. And if I read my Bible correctly, the truth is that we win in the end. Good news for us all, we always win in the end. However, between where we are and winning the battle of faith, there are a series of battles that we will encounter along the way. And if we're not prepared adequately for those battles, we will get taken out before the time. And that is never God's intention and never his goal. The things that were weaknesses to the Italians are things that can be weaknesses to us. Firstly, in numbers. However, if you look around us, now there are some heathens who have chosen not to come to church today, so our numbers are slightly lower than what they normally are. But have a look around. Inside this auditorium, there are probably about 1,800 people. We in our faith are not alone. We've got a community of believers around us. There's strength in the numbers that we have, but even if you are isolated in a crowd, if God is standing beside you, you are in the majority and you've got everything that you need to win the battle. So numbers, but then direction. The Italians had outdated maps. They didn't know where they were going. 
Now, I don't know about you, but I'm grateful to belong to a church where we're always hearing about the vision of the church. We're always hearing about the importance of a personal vision. We know where we're headed. We're we taught how to create that vision for our lives. And so direction isn't an issue for us. But the third thing was equipment. The Italians came with poor equipment. Every single week, we sit under the preaching of the word, and equipment is given to us. It's of a high standard and a high quality. But if we refuse to pick up the sword on the day of battle, it's nobody else's fault but our own if we are not prepared for the fight that lies ahead of us. The journey of faith is one of making sure that we are well equipped for the battles that lie ahead of us, because if we don't pick up that equipment, we remain sitting ducks. Now, there's a story in the Bible, as I said, that talks about Saul and his inability to lead effectively. Now, we're going to read from 1 Samuel chapter 13. This is two chapters after what Pastor Andre spoke about last weekend. In this chapter, we see that by this time, uh, Saul had been leading the nation. There was one stunning victory that he had won for the nation, which was wonderful. But there was one humiliating defeat that he encountered as well, not because they lost the battle, but because they were intimidated to the point where they didn't even fight the battle. There was an army of 36,000 people facing them. Philistine army was big. The Israelites only had 2,000 people to fight. They were afraid. And we saw a whole bunch of those 2,000 people running away, and they hid. They hid in holes, they hid in caves, they hid in cisterns, they even hid in tombs. It's no mistake that when a leader hides himself in baggage, that the people follow suit and on the day of battle, they hide themselves amongst their own issues. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm so grateful that we belong to a church where our leaders never hide from the fight. They never hide from the difficult things. They never hide from saying the right things or saying the difficult things. They're willing to fight and to stand strong. But we see that this, at this point, um, Samuel had, or Saul had received instruction from Samuel. Samuel told Saul, go to this place, wait for me to arrive, and when I arrive, we will make a sacrifice to God together. Saul grew impatient, and he offered to God the sacrifice on his own. He was un, he was, it was unlawful for him to give the sacrifice. He was not a priest. He should not have done it. And he presumed to get the presence of God through his sacrifice when that's not the way that God wanted it to be done. And from that point onwards, we see that it was the beginning of Saul losing his kingship and losing his authority over the nation. So on that happy point, let's read where the scriptures take us. First Samuel chapter 13 Samuel then left Gilgal and went on his way, but the rest of the troops went with Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah in the land of Benjamin, and when Saul counted the men who were still with him, he found only 600 were left. To face an army of 36,000, I mean, does that sound like a scary ratio? Well, actually, in God's terms, it's not. Because we read in Judges chapter 7 the story of when Gideon and his army faced a battle, faced an army of 135,000 people. And God had whittled the size of the Israelite army down to just 300 people. Never mind the movie, this is where the real action takes place. 300 people managed to defeat an army of 135,000 people. Saul would have known that story, and when he looked at the dismal state where he was at, there should have still been something within his heart that said, no, my God can still fight this battle with me. We can still come out victorious. Goes on to say that Saul and Jonathan and the troops that were with them staying at Geba in the land of Benjamin, that's where they were. The Philistines set their camp up at Michmash. 
Three raiding parties soon left the camp of the Philistines. One went north towards Oprah because they loved the show and desperately wanted to meet her in person in the land of Shul. The other went through to Beth Horon, and the third moved towards the, bar- the border above the valley of Zeboam near the wilderness. In other words, they were perfectly positioned at three different points to attack Saul and to annihilate him. There were no blacksmiths in the land of Israel in those days. The Philistines wouldn't allow them for fear that they would make swords and spears for the Hebrews. So whenever the Israelites needed to sharpen their plowshares, picks, axes, sickles, they had to take them to a Philistine blacksmith. The Philistines had gained so much ground in Israel, and one of the first things that they did was to disarm the Israelites and remove their ability to arm themselves again. It's a picture of what the devil wants to do in the world today. The very first thing he wants to do to us, when he can't necessarily rob us of our faith, he wants to disarm us of the tools that God has given us to fight the battles that lie ahead of us and get us to the point where we feel like there's nothing that we can do to get those weapons back. The Israelites were then forced to pay the Philistines, the very enemy that they were trying to fight against. They had to pay them to get their farming tools sharpened so that they could at least fight with those. The charges were as follows, a quarter of an ounce of silver for sharpening a plowshare or a pick, and an eighth of an ounce for sharpening an axe or making the point of an ox goad. So on the day of battle, none of the people of Israel had a sword or a spear except for Saul and Jonathan. Church, when the day of battle arrives for you personally, for us as a nation, for us as a church, for you and your marriage, for you and your business, when the day of battle arrives, what is going to be in your hand? Because when the day of battle arrives, it is not enough for only our leaders to be equipped with the word of God. It's not enough for only them to have a good answer for difficult questions. It's not enough for only them to have the convictions that they're willing to fight for. Every single one of us needs to be equipped for the battle that lies ahead of us if we're going to come out victorious. It's not enough for only our leaders to have revelation. We need to be in the word, getting revelation for ourselves. We need to be in the presence of God, getting the presence of God for ourselves. We cannot live on secondary revelation all the time, we need to be equipped for the battle that lies ahead of us. So I want to speak to you today on how to prepare for battle. How to prepare for battle. I don't know about you, but 2020 needs to be a year of greater victories. It needs to be a year of strength. It needs to be a year where I come out on top. It needs to be a year where I've left the issues of this year behind. 2020 needs to be a fantastic year. There are battles that are waiting for us now that we need to fight so we can end this year well. There are battles that are waiting for us in 2020 that we need to be equipped to fight well. But if we want to get there, and if we do want to come out victorious, it's never going to happen by default. It always comes by design. So we need to know how to equip ourselves for battle. So I want to share with you just a few points today that I believe might help. Is everyone doing okay? Point number one, if we want to prepare for battle, we need to outwork your faith on God's terms. Outwork your faith on God's terms. Now I'm with Celsi. Anybody else with Celsi? Something's happening over there. Some baggage needs to be addressed. Listen to the message from last week. Anybody happy to be with Celsi? Oh. Anybody not happy to be with Celsi? Does anybody work for Celsi? 
I must say that I, um, I moved to Celsius a couple of years ago, and I've actually been very happy. Um, in fact, on, on two occasions, they've actually given me money back, which Lord knows he performed a miracle over there. Celsius is my network provider. Now, there's an agreement between me and Celsius, and that agreement states that if I pay them my monthly subscription or my monthly fee, I get something back from them. Now, what I pay them, in my mind, far outweighed, or it's, it's far outweighed by what I receive from them, because I don't just get a few phone calls from them. I get the capacity to step into a world of information that I could never get on my own. I've got access to the internet through my cell phone, so I've got information all over the place that I get. To, if I've got a question, I'll first check my Bible, but then I'll look in Google as well, because it also has many, many answers that I'm looking for. I can suddenly contact friends overseas and find out how they're doing thousands of miles away. I can call in at home and see how my wife is doing. I can stay connected to her through the day. I can send text messages. I can receive. It is amazing the benefits that I get from my deal with Cell C. Now, what I cannot do is change those terms. Now, who determines those terms? It's not me. It's Cell C. Because of what I get from them, they get to determine the terms of the agreement between the two of us. Now, if they determine the terms, it doesn't mean that I can suddenly change what those terms are. I cannot say to Cell C, well, all different network providers are different avenues to the same cell tower. So this month, I think I might just pay a little bit of my fee to Vodacom because I like the way their color scheme is looking this month. I can't get to the point where I'm saying, you know, Celsi, this is just all about the money for you. I'm just not happy about this, but now I'm blind to the benefits that I receive. I can't get to the December period and say to Celsi, well, Celsi, MTN is looking mighty fine this month. And so I'm going to flirt with MTN just a little bit. I want to check out the packages at Celsi a little bit MTN. I'm going to not pay over December, but don't worry. I'm coming back in January. So just hold out for me. I'm going to get back to you soon. None of us ever does. Don't, please don't do that. We're not so fickle when it comes to earthly matters. So why are we so fickle when it comes to our relationship with God? If we wouldn't presume to do that with the terms of our network provider, why would we presume to do that in the terms that we receive from God? God is, in essence, our network provider. It's an imperfect parallel, but it makes the point. He's our network provider who connects ourselves to eternity through Jesus Christ. He connects us with one another in the body of Christ. Because of what I get from God, I've got a constant stream of data through the Holy Spirit that tells me that there's hope and giving me strength. I get nonstop text messages through the Word of God telling me who I am and telling me what I can become. The benefits that I receive from my network provider are absolutely incredible compared to anything that I could possibly give to Him. He gets to determine the terms. I cannot come to him and say, Lord, you know, I just don't like the way you're happening or why, the way that you're doing things over here, so I'm going to change things over December. I'm going to go out. I'm going to get drunk. I'm going to do all the things that I really want to do that my desires are leading me to do, but don't worry, I'll get back to you in January. No. If I want to be equipped for battle, I need to make sure I do life according to his terms because his terms are for my benefit and my protection, even though from time to time it might feel like they're constricting and limiting to me. Proverbs 3, verse 5 to 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. There are many things that we carry in our hearts. Carry our family. We carry our finances. We carry our mistakes. We carry our favorite sins. We carry our sexuality. We carry people around us. We carry a lot in our hearts. And the instruction is to trust in Him with all your heart. 
Don't just trust him with the parts that you feel comfortable with him giving access to. Don't just trust him with the things that you really do agree with in the word, but kind of sideline the things that are difficult to digest. No, with whatever is inside your heart, we are encouraged and in fact commanded to trust him with all of our heart and lean not on your own understanding. That means that from time to time, there'll be things that God asks us to do that do not make sense to us. It means that there'll be instructions in the word of God that perhaps do not make sense in the 21st century when the whole world is going that way, but the Bible says go there. There'll be things that we do not understand, but our understanding is not a prerequisite to obedience. We're simply called to honor God and his terms, to walk out our faith on his terms. It says, in all your ways, submit to him and he will make your path straight. Don't expect him to make your path straight if you're unwilling to submit to him first. If we want to be equipped for battle, if we want to receive the strength that he wants to give us through the Holy Spirit, if we want to do this journey well, if we want to become excellent parents, a good, strong spouse, if we want to become an amazing employee, if we want next year to be set up for strength and for success, we cannot approach faith with our own customizations. We have to do it according to God's terms. Over the December period, we need to do life according to his terms. Many people shipwreck their faith They shipwreck their families. They shipwreck their finances because they're unwilling to do it according to God's terms. What does he say about family? What does he say about finance? What does he say about sexuality and relationships? If we do it according to his terms, we will be prepared for battle. So I want to encourage you over the December period, and it sounds like such a rudimentary encouragement, but over December, our guard is down. We are relaxing things are easier. We're not as concerned about being vigilant in all those areas. I want to encourage you to pray. Set time aside in your day to pray. Get before God. I want to encourage you to read your Bible. Don't let it sit on the table gathering dust. Just get into it. Read a a couple verses every day. Make sure you're equipping yourselves for the battle. This is not a message to say, keep your pants up when you go to Ibiza. It's not that. But it is saying, Align your heart so much with the heart of God that you immediately recognize when there's an area that you should not go to because you recognize it'll jeopardize the journey that you're walking. We need to do faith according to God's terms. Point number two, honor the passageway process. Honor honor the passageway process. Now, I'm not exactly a men's health cover model, but I do enjoy going to gym. In fact, I don't, haven't always enjoyed it. In fact, it's been a more recent thing that I started doing this year because the thought of going to gym, the thought of being active, the thought of exercising actually nauseated me previously. But because I've been doing it quite a bit for the last little while, I go like maybe two or three times a week. It's not crazy, not intense, but I actually got to a point where I've started enjoying it. Now, I've got a friend whose name is Al, and Al is an absolute beast somewhat of a sadistic beast because of the pain that he inflicts, but he's a beast. And he helps me to train. And very often what he will do to me is he'll take me out to a passage and it's a long path, maybe about 20 meters passage. And all he's gonna get me to do, so Dev, do lunges that way and then backward lunges back. Three sets. Okay, so I'm lunging there and I'm lunging back. I'm lunging there, lunging back. I'm lunging there, lunging back. Okay, Dev, time to do a farmer's walk. He gives me a weight that I did not think that I can carry, but I have to pick up the weight and do a farmer's walk. And the whole way through, I'm kind of thinking, this is a conspiracy between my wife and Elle because she just wants me to carry more shopping from the boot of the car. That's all I feel like I'm doing right now, but I just have to carry and do the farmer's walk. Okay, Dave, do five lunges there and 10 squats. And five lunges, 10 squats. Do that there and back three times. It's unglamorous. 
There are no paintings in the passage. There's no scenery, there's no atmosphere. It is dusty and it is cold and the floor is just raw concrete. There's nothing attractive about the passage. There's no destination to the, package, to the passage. But even if there was a destination, the destination would be completely irrelevant because the destination isn't what gives me strength. Faithfulness in the passageway is what develops strength in my life. I don't need to understand what muscles I'm using. I don't need to understand how it's developing the different parts of my body. All I need to do is pick up that weight and faithfully carry on doing what I've been asked to do. Whenever we are finding ourselves in a point where the destination seems so far away, if I'm doing repetitive motions and repetitive things that seems like it's just not doing anything in my life or in my marriage, just texting my wife, hey, I love you, just looking after my kids, it just seems boring and repetitive. You are stuck in a passageway and it's God's very tool to equip you for something greater because in that passageway, you are developing strength. And you may not necessarily realize, but God's adding to you little by little by little. Because what started for me as three simple sets then became three harder sets and three harder sets and five harder sets, then seven harder sets. And now doing seven harder sets is not as difficult for me as when I started doing the three harder sets because I've developed a bit of strength. God uses the passageway moments of life. He uses the passageways where it's boring and mundane and difficult. He uses the actions that are repetitive and simple to build incredible strength into our lives. I wonder if you can identify the passageway moments in your life. Whenever I'm taking my kids to school in the morning or picking them up from school, it's never wasted time. I'm always armed with a whole bunch of questions that I'm asking them. And some of them are silly. Some of them don't mean anything, but all of them are a point of contact. Some of them are, hit, are tucked away with a little message or a little lesson that I want them to learn. But all of it is geared towards me understanding how they're doing. My wife and I, we live in four ways. And it feels like a curse getting from four ways to Santon every single morning with the traffic. But it's not wasted time because we're always talking about something. We're always listening to a book or, or feeding into our lives somehow because I do not want to waste the transition moments of life. I want to give God the opportunity to use those moments to feed into my life, to build into my life so that when the day of battle comes, I know that I've equipped myself in the moments that used to seem mundane. Don't waste the passageways, church. Don't waste the moments where it feels like nothing is happening. Be faithful to carry that weight. Be faithful to carry the burden. If your burden's in your marriage, if your burden's in your finances, just carry it day after day. Be faithful to that instruction day after day. You may not see the breakthrough yet, but it's gonna come. In fact, we receive encouragement from Galatians 6 verse 9 that says, let us not grow weary in doing good. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. If you haven't yet reaped that harvest, it simply means just don't give up. If you haven't seen the fruits, just don't give up. If you can't see the breakthrough, just don't give up. If, you just, if things aren't working out the way you want to, God is sending you a message and it's very clear, just don't give up. Just be faithful in the passageway process because the breakthrough is on its way, but you will not receive it if you give up. The passageway process will equip us for the day of battle. Point number three. Don't, ex <clears throat> don't excuse what you didn't know. Don't excuse what you didn't know. Many Bible commentators uh, who speak about this, passion of, uh, this portion of Scripture, they mention that the Philistines were actually master ironsmiths. In fact, they were pioneers in that area. They had knowledge that the Israelites did not have. And they withheld that knowledge from the Israelites on purpose because they knew that if the Israelites knew how to make weapons for themselves, they would also be in trouble. The Israelites simply did not know 
how to make strong enough weapons for themselves. And we can read that and we can think, oh, well, shame. They just didn't know what to do. And sure, we might be able to give them the benefit of the doubt, but not knowing is becoming less and less of a legitimate excuse in this day and age. I mean, we live in the information age, don't we? We live in the age where information is so readily available, there's no area of our lives in which we are going to struggle where we cannot find out the best way to deal with that challenge. When it comes to whatever issue you're facing, maybe with your own parents, an issue with your children, an issue with your marriage, an issue with a work colleague, an issue with battling to find a step up in life, there is so much information out in the world to say, oh, I didn't do it because I didn't know, is actually no longer a good enough excuse. We are responsible to find out. We are responsible to learn, and we are responsible to know what we don't know so that we don't have to return to that place again. Pastor Andre preached a message a couple months ago saying, when you don't know what you don't know, it's dangerous. But when we do know what we do not know, we are empowered to address it and never to get back to that point again. We need to, find, we need to ask ourselves a couple questions. So whenever we're encountering a failure, we typically fail because we didn't know something, didn't know how to accomplish, didn't know how to achieve. Maybe there's a failure in marriage because you just didn't know how to take care of your wife properly. Maybe there's a, a failure at business because you just didn't know how to do the work. I think there's a moment's grace for that first failure, but if you return to that failure time after time, it simply means you've never figured out what you don't know so that you can't get beyond that. So a few questions to ask yourselves. Number one, what don't I know? Ask yourself, what don't I know? If I'm constantly hitting my head in a particular area, what don't I know? If I'm constantly being told by my wife and nagging my wife, my, my relationship is failing with my wife, well, what don't I know that I'm not able to employ that's causing me to get in this position time and time again? Next question is, why don't I know? H have I not sought wisdom from the word? H have I not gone out to go read a book about it? Have I not asked the right people around me? Number three, why did no one tell me? Typically, we need to ask this question, not because nobody is telling us, but because we're too stubborn to listen. God is often telling us what we need to hear, and people around us are often telling us what we need to hear. But because we're so proud and because we're so caught up in ourselves and so focused on my own journey, we're unwilling to listen to those voices because we are unwilling to receive that correction. So it's not so much that people are unwilling to tell us, it's that we're unwilling to hear what they have to say. If we want to advance in life, if we want to figure out what we don't know, if we want to get better knowledge so that we can increase ourselves in this world, we need to allow people around us to speak into our lives. Husbands, I want to encourage you, listen to your wife. Before I got married, my wife and I had an opportunity to drive uh, Pastor Steve Penny. Did everybody know Steve Penny? We had an opportunity to drive him somewhere, and we were, we were about a month away from getting married. And I very boldly asked the question, you know, Pastor Steve, after your many, many years of marriage, what's one piece of advice that you could give to me as a married man? I hated his answer, because his answer was, listen to your wife. And it didn't make sense to me initially because I'm like, no, I'm the leader of this marriage. I can do what I'm called to do. I need to, I need to lead with strength and do what I tell you to. No, I never, never said that, never, ever. You know, men, God has given us wives, not as a subordinate, but that together we're under the same submission to him. God created Eve to be a helpmeet to his wife. God created Eve because God knew that Adam couldn't do it alone. 
God created Eve to be a voice of encouragement and a voice of help. If we are unwilling to listen to our wives, we're actually resisting God's tool to help us to become greater men. I want to encourage you guys, listen to your wives in Jesus' name. Now, wives. I'm just saying. This works both ways. Make him want to listen. Number four, who does know? Who does know? Who in your world is further along in this journey? Who has done this successfully? Who has been victorious? Who has gained the victory? Who, who can you identify in your world who might be able to speak into where you're at? And number five, when am I going to learn from them? Which comes back to number three, which is, why is nobody telling you? You've got to be willing to listen and willing to learn. Maybe you have a coffee with a person, ask them a few point question, a few point questions. Maybe it's like somebody past, like Pastor Andre, you might not be able to meet with him personally, but he's written so many books about the stories of his life, the things that he's had to overcome. You can learn through books, learn through podcasts, learn through seminars online. There's always some way that we can learn. But to say I didn't know, to say I, I, I wasn't equipped because I just didn't know, that should never be an excuse that we afford to ourselves. In that moment, we say, listen, I dropped the ball. I failed. I didn't get this right, but I'm never going to get here again because I'm always going to learn. And to say that I just didn't know is never going to be my excuse. Point number four, pay the right price at the right place. Pay the right price at the right place. The Israelites ended up spending exorbitant prices to do something quite simple, to sharpen their farming tools, to use them as weapons. In the end, they paid the right price, but at the wrong place. In fact, they paid the wrong price at the wrong place. It was a high price to pay. They shouldn't have been paying that price. And they were paying it to people who shouldn't have been getting their money. But in so doing, they were actually being robbed of their strength, robbed financially, and robbed because they weren't given an opportunity to develop themselves. The Bible says in John 10 verse 10, that the enemy comes to steal kill and destroy. His goal is to rub us in life. He's a bit of a kleptomaniac. He just can't help it. He wants to rub us of hope, joy, strength, peace, opportunity, the grace of God. And he knows that if he cannot rub us of our faith, he will rub us of our focus. And in the end, we pay a high price with our time being distracted by a whole bunch of different things around us. And in the end, we're paying a high price and we are weakened because of it. If you pay the wrong price, at the wrong place, you're getting robbed. If you're paying, paying the wrong price to the right place, you're being fooled. So at work, you were there to perform. At work, you're there to increase. At work, you're there to gain a profit. But if you're paying the wrong price with an attitude that says, oh, this is just a job. I'm going to give the least that I can give. My boss is really stupid, and I don't like anybody over here. My colleagues are horrible, and this is the worst environment. If only God could get me. You're always going to give your le the least that you have to give. You're paying the wrong price at the right place. It should be a place where you give your best. It should be a place where you pay the price to increase yourself and to increase the environment around you. You're being fooled if your actions are honoring God. If you pay the right price to the wrong place, you are the robber. For example, I sent her text messages throughout the day telling her that I love her, 
send her even the kissing emoji just to let her know that I love her very much. In fact, I want her to know that she's so completely in my thoughts. I want her to feel special today. So I organized for a bunch of flowers to be delivered to her work, the most beautiful rose you've ever seen. In fact, she, I'm so crazy about this woman that I'm gonna make sure I book us away for a weekend. We can have just a romantic weekend away for the two of us just so that she knows that she is my absolute world. Right price, but she's not your wife. Wrong place. You're now robbing yourself and you're robbing your wife of the marriage that you can have together. If you pay the right price, the right level of energy, the right level of passion, the right level of strength, but it's going to somebody who doesn't deserve it, going to an area that doesn't deserve it, you're spending all your time on Instagram and you're thinking, hey, I'm connecting with my friends, I'm paying a price to stay connected to the world around me, and along the way you're thinking, oh, there's a Stephen Furtick quote, that's great, I'm gonna receive that, that's my word of the Lord for today. Or maybe it's a Joyce Meyer quip, and you're like, oh, that's a great video, I've spent time in the Word. No, no, you're just rubbing yourself, and you're rubbing yourself of opportunity to receive from the Lord, because you paying the right price at the wrong place. If we pay the right price at the right place, it's difficult. It takes something from us. It's hard. But the benefit is always equipping. If I'm taking time out of my day to get into the Word of God, it's a price because I'm tired. And I feel like if I pray, it's, dear Lord Jesus, It's difficult to get into the Word because sometimes I don't understand it. It, it sometimes doesn't make sense to me, but hey, I'm gonna keep on going. It, it's difficult to spend time with my children when there's so much on the go, but man, I just, I recognize that they've got a need to be with their daddy, so I'm, I'm gonna be there today, even though there's so much I need to do. It's difficult to be fully present at work when my life is falling apart around me, but I'm gonna be there, I'm gonna give my best. If you pay the right price at the right place, you are equipping yourself for success and you're giving God the perfect opportunity to do a work inside of you that he needs you to give to him in order for him to give you what you need to be victorious. Point number five, get a victory with what you have to get a victory with more. Get a victory with what you have to get a victory with more. The scripture that we read said that only Saul and Jonathan, his son, had a sword. I love the fact that Jonathan, his son, had a very different attitude to his father. Whereas Saul was weak and Saul hid amongst the baggage, Jonathan was willing to step out and to fight and to take on battles that perhaps didn't seem like would land in his favor, but he was willing to take the risk nonetheless. In the preceding chapter, uh, chapter 14, we see that Jonathan took his, uh, his armor bearer, just the two of them. Jonathan had a sword. His armor bearer would have been ill-equipped. But they said, look, there's a, there's a camp of Philistines over there. Let's go confront them, and we'll see if God is gonna give us the victory. They took a great risk. And because they took that risk, just the two of them together, they killed 20 Philistine enemies. When the Philistines saw this was taking place, there was such confusion that was injected into the whole army that the whole Philistine army started fighting against themselves and they defeated themselves all because these two men stepped out in faith. That armor bearer was not well equipped, but he was willing to fight with what was in his hands. And because of what they did together, and because the Philistine army was so defeated by themselves and they, the, what was left, they just fled away. They left all their equipment behind. And because they left all their equipment behind, suddenly the Israelite army had the equipment that they needed to fight another battle again. So often we look at what we don't have and are completely blind to what we 
do have. Monday is my family day because um, we don't work on Mondays. And so we have special time that we spend with our kids. And we try to do you know, special things to them from time to time. And this week, Monday, we said, cool, we were going to go to the arcade game. And kids, we're going to go to the arcade. We're going to go to the arcade, play a bit of games over there. They were terribly excited. When we got there, we saw the bounce was next door. And so we thought, well, hey, let's, let's, let's maybe do bounce instead. They're like, yes, cool, we're going to do bounce. So we went to bounce for an hour. got it completely exhausted. It was a whole bunch of fun. But when we left... My daughter, who's three years old, looked into the arcade, and she burst into tears, saying, I want to go to the arcade. I'm like, child, have you not just seen the fact that we spent money for you to go to bounce instead? So often kids just look at what they don't have, and they don't recognize what they did have. A great experience that she had just had was overwhelmed by her desire for something that she didn't have. Yet so often as grown-ups, we are still unable to make that same realization. I don't have his figure, or her bank account, or their job, or that opportunity, or that promotion, or that gym membership. Well, what do you have? Because what you do have is God's tool to get victories in your life. When we read the story of, of, of Samson, he was being weighed down by a thousand Philistines. He had no weapons with him, but he looked around and he saw the fresh jawbone of a donkey. And that is all that he needed to kill a thousand Philistines in one battle, thousand against one with the jawbone of a donkey. What is left in your hands might be the carcass of your marriage. It might be the carcass of your finances. It might just be the dead things of your history. But God's saying, look, if you would just pick that up and start doing something with it, that will become the very thing that I can bless and put my anointing on to give you the victory. So that in fact, in the end, you're not the one who's having to do all the fighting, but I have blessed this battle so that you come out victorious. And if you are able to win that battle, I will equip you and those around you with something that you couldn't afford for by yourself so that for the next battle that waits for you, you are perfectly equipped and perfectly poised for that victory. Let's never bemoan what I do not have. Oh, if only I had that wife, then things would be a little bit better. If only I had that car, then, you know, life would feel better. If only I could get that iPad or that Apple Watch or whatever. Well, no. No, what is in your hand? And what are you going to do about it? Because God cannot bless your moaning about what you don't have, but he certainly can anoint your activity with what you do have. We've got to get a move on. There's a battle waiting for us, church. There's a battle in the world around us. You may not have all the answers to what's facing us, but you got something. You might have a seed, but there's an answer that you have to give. What do you need to know? Who do you need to ask? What questions do you need to find out? What do you have in your hand that's waiting for God's blessing upon it to become something victorious for you? There's a battle waiting, but we need to be equipped. We hope you have been blessed and inspired by this message. 